This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On November 15th, 1920, the League of Nations held its first meeting in Geneva, with one major player in the geopolitical landscape not present. Congress had not ratified the United States' participation in the League of Nations at this time. It was a polarizing topic for some, maybe many, in the nation and Congress. Something this week's guest believes may have contributed to a newly formed league deciding to go with the term association instead of league. Speaking of that new association, can't have an association without a first game, right? That brings us to this week's topic, the Dayton Triangles. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is October 3rd. 1920. We are at Triangle Park in Dayton, Ohio. It's pretty early. We see some crews working on over there on the grounds. There's a buzz in the air. Something to do with this newly formed, air quotes, league. This league, or maybe not a league, was considered to be the American Professional Football Association. And this little tiny town is destined to be extremely important for the whole shebang. The team involved? The Dayton Triangles, a topic that this week's guest knows very well. We bring on Bruce Smith. No, no, he's not that Bruce Smith of football lore as far as sacking the quarterback. It's this Bruce Smith, which coincidentally, you can find Bruce Smith's work over at the website, thisbrucesmith.com. Now, Bruce joins us to share a brief history of the Dayton Triangles, including that first game you may have heard about. The one the NFL recognizes as the first ever game between two NFL teams. On October 3rd, in 1920, the Columbus Panhandle stroll into town to square off against the Dayton Triangles. Then the rest is, as they say, history. We'll get into the interview in a little bit, but first, breaking news alert! Bruce's podcast about the Dayton Triangles, a 20-episode mega-event, is now part of the Sports History Network. Look for it on your favorite podcast player, or you can head over to the website at sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find this show, the Dayton Triangles podcast, as well as all of the other podcasts we have on the network. With that, let's get into this interview with Bruce Smith. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the first things, so I always, like I said, I the DeLorean, I'm going to bring this into the, the picture for you. I actually have a physical DeLorean for us, and we're going to go ahead and hop in that thing together. We're going to go 88 miles an hour back to future. Now take me and the listener to October 3rd, 1920, and tell me why the heck is there this little historical marker sitting in the middle of Dayton, Ohio right now? Well, first of all, I got to tell you, the whole DeLorean thing put me off a little bit because I'm kind of tall and I was afraid I'd be cramped. Oh, but, no, that's okay. What we'll do is we'll make some modifications for you just so you can hop in and you can put the seat back. Well, I appreciate it because uh, I rode in a friend's Corvette T-top one time and my head stuck out the roof. It was embarrassing. But anyway, October 3rd, 1920. 
it's important because you've got all these teams that have come together from across several states. A lot of them were associated with what was called the Ohio League back in the day. And they decided to sort of form a, uh, a conference or an association of teams. League wasn't a popular word back then because there was opposition to the League of Nations. So they called it the uh, American Professional Football Association instead of a league. Uh, a couple of years later, they'll change the name to the National Football League. But for now, it's the APFA. And uh, the first game between two league members was played on October 3rd, 1920, when the Columbus Panhandles visited the Dayton Triangles at Triangle Park. Uh, the very first time it happened, there was another game that played that day in Rock Island, Illinois, but they're in central time. Now, the local papers in Dayton didn't record the exact kickoff time of the Dayton game, but in Rock Island, they did record that their game started at 3.04 p.m. Central Time. Now, since Dayton is in Eastern Time, and the scheduled start of the game would have been 2 p.m., if they kicked off anywhere near the scheduled time, then most of the Dayton game was already over before uh, Rock Island kicked off. So that's my basis for claiming that the Dayton game was the very first. Yeah, it's pretty cool to think too back of you. So this is the first time I've, maybe I read it in my research before, but the reason why they didn't call it a league was because of the contradictions, the league of nations going on at the time. Yeah. Huh. That, that was, that was at least my speculation. I didn't see it anywhere in print where somebody said, you can't call this a league because the League of Nations. But I do know that it was an unpopular thing. People didn't, that the word league kind of left a bad taste in people's mouths. Hmm. Yep. Again, I, I didn't ever hear that before. So I kind of figured that's why they didn't call it a league from the outset. Because the original... The original league was called the Ohio League, and nobody had a problem with it in 1905. But I don't know. That's just my speculation. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess what's good to clarify is speculation, but maybe there's some good basis behind it and everything. And speaking of the 1905 Ohio League and the whole football before there was, I'm using the NFL terms here because it turned into that down the road. Uh, let's go back again further. Let's go further back to the beginning. Let's talk about the origin, the formation of the Dayton Triangles. Well, the the genesis for the team began in 1909. Uh, there were a group of kids who lived in Dayton and, a, and were incoming freshmen at the St. Mary's Academy, which later became known as the University of Dayton. 
these kids were basically what you would call townies. They didn't really fit in with the kids who lived on campus. And so one of the uh, officials of the school, uh, a fellow by the name of Father O'Malley, uh, decided to help them out by getting them started with a basketball team. And the uh, basketball team, they picked the name St. Mary's Cadets uh, so they wouldn't be confused with the school's official basketball team, which was called the Saints. And this basketball team went on a tear. They outscored their first two opponents by a score of like 267 to 1. And from there, they went on to uh, start an athletic association. So they started playing baseball and then football. So they would play baseball in the springtime, they'd play football in the autumn, and then basketball in the winter. And when basketball was over, it was time to get started with baseball again. So these guys went on. They became pretty notable in the Dayton area. Uh, they became the Dayton football champions. Uh, in 1916, they cut a deal with an organization in town called the Dayton Gym. And I think Dayton Gym may still be there. But they cut a deal to use Dayton Gym facilities for their training and practices. And in return, they changed their name from the St. Mary's Cadets to the Dayton Gym Cadets. Uh, and then after that, uh, a whole bunch of businesses get involved, and uh, they end up getting started as a professional team in the truest sense of the word in 1917. And then at that point in time, so you said multiple businesses were involved, and is that when they became the Dayton Triangles, or was this later down the road? In 1917 is when they became the Dayton Triangles. Uh, the members of, of the, the Dayton Gym Cadets, along with players from two company teams, uh, the, the, the three triangle companies were the Dayton Engineering Laboratories Company, or the Delco, uh, Dayton Metal Products, and um, Domestic Engineering Corporation. Uh, and uh, those three companies got together and created a park initially for their employees, and then eventually they opened it up to the entire Dayton community. Uh, and they kind of got the team started, uh, and, and they financed it for several years until uh, some things changed that caused them to uh, basically get away from that. And then the team became privately held in 1923, I think. Is this a chicken before the egg thing or one of those deals? Like, so was it the triangles was the name because of the park or was the park because of the name or where did the, the name triangles come in? The, the park and the team came from the three companies. They were called the triangle companies or just the triangle. And then, so 
with the three companies, you kind of met, alerted to them. There's th- there's three kind of big names that when I was doing my research that kind of popped out. What are those three big names of the companies? Uh, the I mentioned the Delco, the Dayton Electronic Laboratories Company, uh, the uh, Domestic Engineering Company, and Dayton Metal Products. And then who would be the, the, the leaders of those companies, I guess? Uh, the guy who was in charge of Delco, uh, probably the best known, was Charles Kettering. Um, the guy who was in charge of domestic engineering was a fellow named Edward Deeds. Um, it's interesting because Deeds actually hired Kettering when Deeds was working for the National Cash Register Company. He hired Kettering to develop an electrical motor that would open cash registers without you having to pull back on a big old arm. And so after he did that, he got the idea to put the same technology to work in starting cars because you had to crank those old cars. And so he developed the first electronic uh, ignition. Um, so he and he indeed went into business forming the doing the Delco. That was the first company. Then uh, Deeds, earlier in, in his career, had actually created electrical power plants to run NCR factories across the world at the time, and he got the idea to apply that to uh, farms and houses that were outside the electrical grid at the time. And so that product became known first as Delco Light, and then it got spun off into the domestic engineering company. And then the third company was Dayton Metal Products, who was, which was run by uh, a gentleman named Harold Talbot. And that name is kind of important because Harold Talbot's son became the first coach of the Dayton Triangles, Nelson Bud Talbot. uh, He's a standout at Yale. I played end there. uh, And actually, I think he played on the line. But he was a standout, was named an All-American in the early 19-teens. And came back to Dayton with this idea of starting a football team that he would coach. Uh, So Talbot is very important and is often overlooked in this history. Yeah, I mean, again, the other names when I was researching, we're talking, again, a couple couple years ago when I had that episode, but the Talbot didn't pop up as much from what I recall. And I don't. So let me ask you this question. We're going to go off script here a little bit. Do you when I when I'm able to research, listen to podcasts, do whatever, it's like I find myself almost like transported to that time and thinking about what it was like back then and the the various things. I mean, what, what did you feel like when you're doing this research in that area? I thought it was kind of interesting because I, I kind of felt that way, too, a little bit, because, for example, in 1915, 16, 17, when they're first starting the team, um, 
like uh, the first day in October, what they always did was they ran a cable wire. Back in those days, cable news literally came off a wire. And they ran a wire out to the park, and they got uh, basically uh, reports from the World Series that was running at the same time. And during halftime and during breaks in the game, they would send a guy out with a megaphone who would literally announce what was going on at the World Series because radio was still in its infancy. So that's something that really struck me. And that was receiving a message with Morse code, I take it? Yeah, they, they did the message via Morse code. And, you know, they would basically do the play-by-play uh, via Morse code, and then a guy would go out and read what was going on to the to the audience, to the, the, the crowd that was there. <laughs> Flash forward not that many years in human history, and everyone can watch the game on their phone while they're at the game watching another game if, <laughs> if they want Absolutely, to. yeah. It's just, I know, I find myself when I'm in TV shows or movies, and it doesn't have to just revolve around sports, but I am easily transported in my mind the theater of the mind to that era and i feel like i'm living it so i don't know just pick a show out there and i just feel the same way and even even if it's just like marvel movies or something like that that's what one reason why i think sports history or just podcasts in general for me are just so i don't know perfect because you can listen to them in your ears while you're walking and well you got to pay attention because before you know it you might drive past a couple exits and that's what i have caught myself doing (laughs) in the past Uh, so one thing getting back on the rails here, you put in our uh, little show notes, our show docs, we'll call it, Forrest McNabb. And that's a guy that I'm supposed to be able to bring. Why, where did this person fo- factor into the story? Forrest Burley McNabb was uh, employee number 14 in the Delco, which grew to thousands and thousands of employees over time. He was there at the beginning. Um, They originally hired him because he had experience in patent law, but he was also a big sports fan, and he had uh, a sense of community interest. He was very interested in wanting to help people to make their lives better, and so he was a big driving force behind the creation of Triangle Park which was primarily the doing of um, uh, deeds and Kettering. Uh, they, had, they had the money. They put the money up um, to create this park. They bought two parcels of land, one of which was great for baseball fields, so people could, you know, go out and play baseball. The other parcel of land had a natural amphitheater, and that served as the uh, venue for the football games when they had those. And that's very close to where that uh, little placard now sits that you were talking about. Um, that's where they played the football games. Uh, somewhere out there, I know there's a picture that was taken in aerial photograph circa 1920 of uh, the Triangle Park where you could see the the football field drawn in, sort of 
you know, put in there. It's very interesting how that worked because when they kicked extra points, they ended up going out onto Ridge Avenue. <laughs> but I'm digressing here. Um, so Forrest McNabb was a guy who uh, was really uh, a behind-the-scenes person. When they created Triangle Park and decided to, to create this team, and, and, and there were actually lots of triangle teams. There were baseball teams called the Triangles and basketball teams called the Triangles. Um, so it was an all-sports kind of thing. But they had an executive committee that consisted of one member from each of the three companies. The uh, executive director and one of the members on the board was Forrest McNabb. Uh, the representative of Dayton Products, or Dayton Metal Products, was actually Nelson Talbot, who went on to become the coach. So between the two of them, they really controlled things for the first few years. Yeah, I'm looking up right here, too. You mentioned a good thing besides McNabb there, uh, the photos. I had to look it up because you said aerial photo circa 1920. But then I was like, huh, nowadays, again, going back to our Google Earth thing, we can, I mean, I can look at anywhere in the world. I kind of got a little sidetracked because I was thinking, hey, airplanes, that's really cool. But then, wait a second, <laughs> they're talking about 1850s was like the first one because of weather balloons <laughs> going up in the, the sky. Right. I didn't even think about that. Um, so at that park, there's the the sign or the the placard you mentioned. But a couple couple weeks before that was a pretty significant time in football, pro football, NFL history, September 17th of 1920 at Ralph Hayes Automobile Showroom. Did, did the Dayton Triangles have representation at that meeting? The Dayton Triangles were indeed represented there. They were represented by a gentleman named Carl Stork, S-T-O-R-C-K. Uh, Carl, who for some reason was nicknamed Scummy, although nobody's ever figured out why, um, but... He was there at the meeting. Uh, he was. He thought he was ostensibly there to try to meet Jim Thorpe and convince Jim Thorpe to bring the Canton Bulldogs for a game in Dayton. Uh, they had been after Thorpe for years and years, and Thorpe kept kind of dodging them. Um, but he was there. Carl Stork was hired by Forrest McNabb. Um, to become the business manager for the team uh, after the original business manager went to go to the Great War. And Stork stayed as the business manager of the team after that. And he eventually went on to become an NFL official and was actually president of the league for the last couple of years before the commissioner era. So they, yeah, I mean, there's some significance beyond just that first meeting then and even beyond the team. Uh, how, how long did, okay, so the team itself, what was the tenure of the Dayton Triangles in the league as well as did they have any success during that time frame? Uh, the Dayton Triangles uh, were founding members. They played from the first season in 1920 
through the 1929 season, um, their best years were the first years. In fact, they were actually at their best as a team before entering the NFL. Um, they were the acknowledged Ohio League champions in 1918, uh, a year I called the year of the asterisk because they didn't have a lot of competition that year because of a pandemic. But um, it's interesting because uh, a lot of their best players had gone to war. In 1917, uh, Coach Talbot ended up enlisting um, and going off to war. And so uh, their quarterback, Al Mart, took over as the coach during that season. And then Mart enlisted to go to war. And they needed to find a coach. So um, at the time, the, uh, the Triangles organization uh, were contracting out with uh, professional athletes to participate in games, uh, along with all the, the poor old suds, you know, who were just out there playing baseball, football, basketball for fun. And one of the guys they got was a player for the Cincinnati Reds named Earl Greasy Neal. And so Carl Stork hired Neal to coach the Triangles for the 1918 season. Uh, Neil coached and played running back, and they basically mopped up all the competition because there wasn't a lot. Yeah, and speaking of Earl Greasy Neil, that was one of the guys you made sure I, I, you wanted to make sure that we brought up so we can check that off the box. Let's talk about some other guys you wanted to bring up here. Uh, normally, I give what we'll call a Mount Rushmore. Uh, I'll ask the guests to say, hey, give me a Mount Rushmore of players, but you kind of gave me a a cheat list, we'll call it. And you mentioned the first one, Al Mart. Let's just kind of go rapid round succession, uh, the first name, and then a little bit of what they meant to the team and why you would consider them one of the early greats. Al Mart, what's the, what's the story there? Al Mart was the consummate field general. He was not a big guy. He probably, at the height of his career, weighed 160 pounds soaking wet. But... Uh, he could throw a ball like a gunshot. He had an incredible arm. He also played catcher for baseball teams. He, he also played guard uh, in basketball. Uh, he was an all-around athlete uh, and was one of the passing leaders of the early NFL, the first days like 1920, 21. Uh, another guy who's probably better known is Norb Saxtetter, um, who was a, uh, a, a basically a halfback, but he was more of a uh, more of a kind of make a miss kind of guy. He didn't use a stiff arm. He was basically, you know, trying to. He didn't try to break tra- tackles. He he avoided being tackled if at all possible. He was the kind of guy who would run fifty yards to gain five. Uh, but he was a, an extremely dangerous kick returner, uh, as well as uh, a tough guy to bring down in the open field. Uh, another guy uh, is Lou Partlow who scored the first NFL touchdown. 
Uh, Partlow was the opposite of Saxtetter. He was a run-you-over kind of guy. Um, the, the legend was that he would run through the woods to train, and he would dodge trees, and every now and then he'd lower his shoulder and hit one. <laughs> um, uh, another guy is uh, uh, George Hobby Kinderdine, who kicked the first extra point. Uh, Kinderdine was one of those guys who came up through the uh, sandlots and made the transition into the first pro league. He played every season for the Triangles uh, until 1929. In 1930, he actually signed with another team, but his heart wasn't in it anymore. He was that de devoted to the Triangles. Um, so he was there. And uh, another fellow uh, that I would be remiss if I didn't mention was a fellow named Dr. Dave Reese. Uh, Dave Reese was a dentist by trade, but uh, he was very active in sports and eventually went on to become the first commissioner of the Mid-American Conference. So I wanted to get him out there too. <laughs> so we're going to go with uh, the Mount Rushmore plus the etching on the side of we'll add that one extra name on there. What about, okay, so we've got the history a little bit here and we're going to be telling the listener of the show to go to your project, the Dayton Triangle Project, and then the subsequent podcast. Uh, what? Why you? What, why did you start this Day Dayton Triangle Project back whenever you started it? Um, well, I grew up within walking distance of Triangle Park. Uh, I grew up near there and I found out you know, sort of later in my life, it, it wasn't something that people talked about. Um, then I found out later in my life that Dayton was one of the founding members of the NFL, and I became fascinated. Uh, I wanted to find out more about the people and the circumstances and what life was like back then. And it kind of snowballed from there. Uh, I originally started out to write a book. Um, but as I was in the process of doing this, I found out that the NFL was doing their 100th anniversary thing in 2019. So I had to push my timeline up a little bit. And that's how it became a podcast. So what, speaking of that NFL 100, the whole everything that came around where they really promoted it and they had the NFL 100 logo everywhere in that town where you said that it wasn't really known before what was it big news at the time then in dayton um the the 100th anniversary was a pretty big deal um but the team wasn't particularly memorable mm -hmm. um they had one really good season in 1920 they had a halfway decent season in 1921, and it went downhill from there. So it wasn't something that people around ta talked about. You know, they didn't say, wow, remember those triangles, you know, because the, the triangles didn't really win much of anything after 1918. Yeah, so not like really huge news or anything like that. I'm just, I was curious if, because didn't the NFL, well, not necessarily just the NFL, but didn't they come in and spend some money on Triangle Park or something like that? Um, they had planned to do that. Uh, but what happened was um, somebody did an archaeological survey 
And they found out that uh, there was evidence that there might be some uh, remains underneath the grounds where they were going to put the practice field. Um, and the, uh, the uh, back when, let me take you way back to 1916-17, when they were first looking at buying the land, they actually surveyed the land and they desecrated a lot of Native American remains in the process. And so I think the city took the decision that they didn't want anything done to disturb the grounds at Triangle Park where there might be Native American remains. And I can understand that, and I think it was the right thing to do. So the NFL eventually ended up putting up, I think, a practice field um, uh, on the other side of town over at Welcome Stadium. So they did make an investment, um, and unfortunately for uh, the Cincinnati Bengals, it was the end of the career of A.J. Green in Cincinnati because they had a practice there, and he hurt himself and was out for the whole season. Oh, man, yeah. he's he's. Let's just say for him, he, he's – Hall of Fame worthy potentially we'll see. I mean, he's he's a great player. Now, when he's he's potentially going to get his only shot at a Super Bowl, hopefully this year, we'll see what happens there. I'm a Lions fan, so it doesn't matter who wins in the NFC as far as I'm concerned, except for I guess I'm rooting for the Rams because of Matthew Stafford. Yeah. So what we'll, okay, let's take back that DeLorean one more time. And if you could choose to go back any point in Dayton Triangle history to relive a moment, like you're going to be part of the moment, what moment are you going to go to? This is, this is kind of a tough, a tough one to answer, but I think historically in terms of the triangles, um, I would go back not to October 3rd, but to October 24th, 1920, because that was probably the team's finest moment. October 24th, 1920, the Canton Bulldogs came to town. Jim Thorpe led the team in, and they were going to play the triangles. It was something that Dayton fans had waited for their entire lives. It was, you know, a, a huge deal. So they played the game, and they played, they played the Bulldogs to a 2020 time. In fact, the triangles were ahead at one point, uh, and Jim Thorpe decided to insert himself into the lineup. He wound up kicking two long field goals to salvage the tie. Otherwise, the triangles would have beaten the mighty Bulldogs. And that was really significant because for the first time, they had respect. There were no asterisks. There was no flu or anything like that that was causing, uh, you know, all the other teams not to play. They proved that they could compete with the best. So I think that would be the game I would want to see, you know, because you had him, you had Almark uh, at his top form, you had Lou Partlow who was a bruising running back, uh, you know, 
just just a great uh, venue and a great atmosphere. That's the game I would go back to October 24th, 1920. All right. So then when we'll punch those tickets and maybe we'll have to see if there's any kind of uh, on our sponsor, Real One, if they have anything around that time frame. Speaking of non-Dayton Triangle history, I mean, we have the the project, of course, but what about you and every all of your other work? If the listener wanted to find out more about yourself and the work that you do, maybe share that a little bit with the listener here. Um, sure. Actually, I do music these days. Um, and the website where you can find information about my music is thisbrucesmith.com. One word, thisbrucesmith.com. And uh, I have information there about all the music that I do, and it's kind of what I'm into doing. And I also do um, stock music, as a matter of fact. Uh, I'm working on uh, stock music for uh, Darren's uh, podcast where he's doing the uh, historical thing. Uh, I just uh, sent him uh, a piece of 1920s era jazz that I cooked up. So I'm doing that. Anybody who would like to find out about the podcast that I created can go to DaytonTrianglesPodcast.com and all the information you need is there and you can go through, listen to episodes and find out whatever. And yeah, that's perfect too. That's a good segue into what he's talking about. Listener of the show right now, you're going to have to flip over your channel after this is Orville Mulligan, sports writer. That's going to be the sports history drama on the Sports History Network. And for you to learn more about that as you go, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com. Bruce, is the reason why you have thisbrucesmith.com because you're not that Bruce Smith? That's correct. I am <laughs> not that one. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Bruce Smith was a great player out of uh, University of Virginia and um, uh, and uh, he, uh, played uh, for the Bills and for Washington for many years and is a Hall of Famer. So, yeah, I'm not that one. <laughs> yeah, no disrespect to this Bruce Smith, but I wonder how many listeners are going to click on the interview and they're going to be like, when are we going to start talking about the Buffalo Bills here? What's the deal? Yeah, <laughs> right. So anyway, again, appreciate you coming on. Before I let you go, I want to ask you to give any last words of wisdom, gridiron knowledge, nuggets, whatever you will for the listener of the show. Um, Nothing I can think of right off the top of my head. Um, you know, check out my podcast. Check out um, uh, Sports History. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. And if you're not careful, you'll get sucked into it the way I did. There you go. Check into sports history. But be careful. Because you'll get sucked in, go down that rabbit hole, and before you know it, you'll be on the other side and you don't even know what time it is. We talked about that kind of in the middle of the show a little bit. I listen to a podcast or watch a show and I get transported in my mind. Does that happen to you? Because if that's the case then you're probably a great candidate to start a podcast about sports history yourself. We're always looking to help passionate sports history people start their own shows. All you have to do is go to the website and the contact page and reach out. That is over at sportshistorynetwork.com. While you're there, you can find all of our other awesome podcasts. Speaking of our awesome podcasts, next episode is going to be a special 
Rivalry Edition. In one corner, we have the host of yesterday's sports, Mark Mortier. In the other corner, we have the host of Ringside with Redding, boxing from history's yesteryear, Frank Redding. One a Dallas fan, one a Washington fan. One night only to talk about the Cowboys, Redskin rivalry of the 1970s and 80s. So grab your popcorn, strap into the DeLorean, and let's get that baby up to 88 miles an hour. Because it's going to be a wild ride. That and more on the upcoming episode of the Football History Do Podcast. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.